Welcome again to Discovery. My name is Steve, and I'm the lead pastor here uh, for this community. And um, here for one moment, started and continue our journey through the Book of Matthew. I just want to piggyback off the announcements here for one moment, um, and uh, and just say first of all that I continue to be uh, really impressed and inspired and pleased with our community's efforts to be a blessing to our neighbors uh, in paradise. Um, to not just have that be sort of a one-time thing where we gave some money on one Sunday, but continuing to look for ways to, to partner and be a blessing with the uh, recovery process that will be going on for quite some time up there. So uh, this month, our goal is, as you just heard, to get as many gift cards a- as possible together to send up there for Christmas. So as you are out and about doing your regular shopping, doing your Christmas shopping, uh, take some time to pick up a card at Costco or Target or Safeway or one of those places, and then bring them here on Sunday morning. You can bring them to your discovery groups, uh, and I'm sure your group leader can figure out how to get it to us. You can even bring it by the office during the week, whatever it takes to get those uh, to us so that, again, we can send them up uh, to the church in paradise that we are going to be uh, partnering with. That would be that would be awesome. And I think, again, another just real simple, tangible way that we can be a blessing uh, during this time of the year. All right, I know we just prayed, but I want to pray again and uh, pray specifically for that, but then also for our time in Scripture, and then we'll get going here. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, um, uh, we do know that even during this time of the year when we're, we're celebrating, we're thinking about Christmas, we're getting really excited for um, presents and being with family and, and, and all those kinds of things that go along. Uh, with this time of year, that there is also this reality that, that we hurt and that people around us are hurting as well. God, would we continue to be in tune with those, uh, those hurts, even in the midst of celebration, that we would learn how to hold that tension well. God, we pray for uh, this particular effort that we'd be able to provide uh, just a number of real tangible things for uh, our friends and neighbors in paradise um, that those things would go towards helping people get through a time of transition or even get through the holidays um, and, and just bring a little bit of peace of mind and stability to their lives during this time. God, thank you for the opportunity to be generous, to use the things that you have given us to be a blessing to others. Now, God, as we turn our attention to your word, as we continue our journey in the Gospel of Matthew, would you help us to pause here for a moment and would you soften our hearts to what it is that you want to say to us today? As we talk about the birth of Jesus, as we talk about peace, God, for so many of us, peace feels elusive. And we look around at our, our world, we look at our life circumstances, the things that we're going through right now, it seems anything but peaceful. And so, God, would you use the Advent story yet again. Maybe we're very familiar with it. Maybe we feel like we've heard it so many times. Would you use it again to speak to us and to remind us that in the midst of even the most crazy, bizarre circumstances, you can bring peace and you do bring peace. We pray this in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. All right, so week two of Advent, also week two of our journey through Matthew. And just a real quick review. We started this last Sunday, our, our first week in this journey that's going to be a, a fairly long journey for us. I'm so excited about the time that we're going to get to spend 
in Matthew, and, and we said this last week, and I just want to say it again. This is an important season for us in the life of our church. We are rethinking together, renaming together who we are, our, our mission, our vision, who we want to be as a church community, as a community of people who are trying to follow Jesus together. And we've said that our desire as a community is to be good news, to be a good news church, a gospel church. We learned last Sunday gospel literally means good news. And so we want to help as many people as possible discover that Jesus is good news, that Jesus is the best possible news for humanity. And so in order to do that, in order to reflect this good news to the world, we need to be very familiar with Jesus. We need to spend a lot of time with him, learning who he was and what he did and how he did it. And so this is why we're going to be spending this big chunk of time in the gospel of Matthew. This is our road for a while, and I'm really excited to be walking it together. Now, a bit about Advent. As we just learned, this, this idea of Advent is about anticipating. The word literally means a coming or an arrival. And one of the long-standing traditions of the Advent season is that this season is marked as a time of anticipation. Now, originally, Advent had way more to do with anticipating Jesus' second coming, but over time it's evolved to be about anticipating Christmas Day itself. And so we have candles and wreaths and calendars and all these different ways to count down the days until we get to the big day, right, Christmas Day. And one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways we anticipate and get into the season is by decorating our homes. How many of you have decorated your home for Christmas? Feel free to raise your hand. Okay. Pretty common practice. Our family, we did this last weekend. We went and got our tree. It should be up here on the screen. Pretty simple. Um, because we have small children, and this picture was taken on Friday. It already looks radically different in the last couple of days. Okay. <laughs> they love to rearrange it. But, you know, we did the whole thing. We went out, we got, we got the tree, we put on Christmas music, we made some hot chocolate, and we spent some time decorating our house. Our kids love this. They just think it's really exciting. My son Cruz stood like six inches away from that tree after we were done decorating, just like staring at the lights, just mesmerized by this thing that's in our house now. Now, here's something that I learned recently, and I have to credit the show House Hunters for this information. There is a phenomenon in real estate called the Christmas tree window, okay? This is where the living room is situated at the front of the house. There's a big window, usually a bay window, that allows people who are walking by your house or driving by your house to go, wow, they have a big Christmas tree, <laughs> okay? The Christmas tree window. What's interesting to me about this is that in a lot of ways, I feel like the Christmas tree window is a metaphor for how we approach this season. We spend a lot of time and energy dressing ourselves up, decorating our homes, putting on a happy face, projecting an image out to the rest of the world that says, look at this, look at how beautiful this is, everything is great, I'm doing fine. But then underneath that, Behind the Christmas tree window, we are a mess. And no amount of decorating can change the fact that Advent, even though it is this set-apart special season, is still very much like the rest of the year. This 
mixture of light and dark, pain and joy, beauty and ugliness. So one of the questions for us as we enter into this season, as we enter into Matthew's narrative, is which version of the Christmas story do we want? Do we want one that makes us feel really good uh, and, and, and sort of, you know, awakens this nostalgia in us? Or do we want the real story? Because the real story of Advent is, is much more complicated and messy than our, our nativity scenes oftentimes make it out to be. Do we want the messy blood and guts version of Jesus' arrival on earth? Or do we want smiling six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus? If you have your Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin today in verse 18. Last week we looked at the first 17 verses, this genealogy, which is a long list of names. And we talked about how for, for many of us, when we look at a long list of names, especially in the Bible, we have this tendency to sort of check out and be like, oh, what is this about? This is really boring. I don't know what this means. And these names are hard to pronounce. But there's a lot of richness in the genealogy. We considered it as storytelling and as a way for Matthew to set up some of the really big themes that he is going to explore over the next 27 chapters. We looked at the themes of king and kingdom, how this kingdom is radically inclusive, how Jesus is the king for everyone, not just the king for Israel. And in particular, we saw how these themes emerged through the surprising inclusion of four women. And we looked at their stories, how they represent these big themes that Matthew will explore. Now today, sort of tongue-in-cheek have named this sermon Four Men. But really, if you're more of a note-taker, the real title is Four Quests. So you can cross out men and write quest in there. <laughs> um, but we're going to be looking at four primary characters, each one representing a particular quest. And we're going to begin with Joseph. Luke's Gospel gives us Mary's perspective, looks at the birth of Jesus through her eyes, but Matthew focuses on Joseph. Now both of them, Mary and Joseph, are exposed to this crazy truth, right? That they are going to be the earthly parents for the Son of God. This long-awaited Savior for Israel, this King for everyone is going to be in their charge as a baby, as a toddler, as a child, as a teenager. Now, in light of this news, they are both told the same thing. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. No big deal. It's going to parent the Savior of the world, okay? Now, it might make sense to us why that would stir up some fear in Mary. So the question here is, what does Joseph have to fear? Well, on the one hand, his fiancée just got this crazy news that she's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. All right, So that is not an everyday occurrence. That would clearly be upsetting to Joseph. But in addition to that, he's described in the text as being faithful to the law. And depending on your translation, it might say something like righteous or just. Joseph's justness, his righteousness, comes from his desire to uphold the law. Now, in this particular instance, it is within his rights to divorce or, or end his uh, engagement to Mary. 
She is pregnant by some other means, by some other way, and so therefore he has every right to dismiss her. But even more than that, Joseph proves his noble character by desiring to do this in a way that is discreet and in a way that that honors Mary and doesn't bring her more shame. Joseph is trying really hard in the midst of this bizarre news to do the right thing. And we might say it this way, Joseph represents our quest for self-justification. This idea that if we are good people, if we do the right things, then we'll be rewarded equitably for that. So Joseph, trying to do the right thing, then this angel comes to him and says, don't be afraid. You need to take Mary as your wife. Here's one of our first encounters with the rawness of this story. Joseph, a just man is asked to break the law. In doing so, he's putting at risk his his reputation. He's going against his better judgment. He's even contradicting this identity that he's built up as someone who's faithful to the law, someone who's just, someone who's righteous. Risking all this to be faithful to what God has asked him to do. And this, this sort of tension, this tension with the law, will continue on as a theme In Matthew's gospel, he's going to show us over and over again that faithfulness to God, far more important than faithfulness to the law. So Joseph breaks the law, but paradoxically in doing so, he ends up doing the right thing. And we're given some insight into why this is the right thing to do right after this. Two big truths come right on the heels of this message from the angel. First, Joseph told to name this child Jesus. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. Joshua meaning the Lord saves. And we're told a really interesting thing in verse 21. We're told that he's to be named Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And here is is yet another example of surprise in Matthew's storytelling. If you've been in church for a while, you know that Jesus is your Savior. This might sound perfectly normal. But to Matthew's original audience, if Jesus is to be the Messiah, if he is to be their king, he was supposed to save them from their oppression, from the sins that had been perpetrated against them by their oppressors. He was not there to save them from their own stuff. But Joseph told to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, second big truth here is that we're told all of this takes place to fulfill a prophecy found in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, here's a formulation that Matthew uses often. He's going to use it four times just in our text today where he'll say this happened, these series of events or this thing happened because... It was meant to fulfill this promise from the Old Testament. Four of those just in the the birth of Jesus story. Remember Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, a group of people that would have been familiar with the Old Testament and with these promises around who the Messiah was supposed to be. And so again, Matthew making his case, Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. 
And in particular here, the promise that God himself would dwell with them. Emmanuel means God with us. This is not, by the way, an extra name for Jesus. This is just more of a, a statement about who he is. So Joseph, think about his story for a moment. This bizarre conception, this forbidden secret marriage, a righteous man asked to break the law. This begins to show us, again, just how crazy the Advent story is. And Joseph demonstrates in his own way how sometimes in our efforts to be nice, good people, we can miss the bigness and the strangeness of God's salvation story. Now, luckily, Joseph doesn't miss it. He takes this risk to respond to what he's been asked to do, to be more faithful to God than to the law or to the image that he's created for himself. But sometimes we can miss the bigness and the strangeness of what God is up to in our quest to justify ourselves. Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, the story takes a darker turn. We're introduced here to a character named Herod. Herod is a, a complex character. I wish we had a little bit more time to go into him and some of the things that were going on with him. But just to give you an overview, Herod was racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. A very conflicted person. He named himself Herod the Great. If you're going to give yourself a name, that's pretty good. <laughs> May as well go big. He was a local ruler for the Roman occupation, and he had gained power, not through any sort of legitimate means, but by paying off the right people. Now, can you imagine a situation where an authority's legitimacy is in question because of the means through which that person won power? The Bible's not relevant to today at all, right? Now, we're told that Herod has this encounter with the Magi, three wise men who arrive from the east, who arrive in Jerusalem because they had seen a star that signaled the arrival of a new king of the Jews. And they have come trying to find this king because they want to worship him. Now, Herod, as you might imagine, is like, what? <laughs> Herod, disturbed by this news, thinking, wait a minute, I am the king of the Jews. And here's where we just need to say this, needs to be acknowledged, that the good news about Jesus does have political implications. To say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, is a faith statement for sure, but it is also a political statement. And one of the things that Herod reminds us is that while Jesus is good news for the world, there will always be people who reject this good news. And especially those who are trying to rule the world, they will have a hard time with Jesus. You cannot rule the world and submit to King Jesus at the same time. And what Matthew is doing here, he really wants us to see this contrast between Herod the Great, who's actually the illegitimate king, and this little baby in a manger who is the true king. Now, Herod's insecurity at this inquiry leads him to commit one of the great atrocities in Scripture. 
He does a little bit of research and discovers that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. This is, in fact, where we're told Jesus is born. And so Herod has all the boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas, just to make sure, under the age of two killed. All right, this is, this is horrific. This is not the nativity scene that we are accustomed to. Herod represents our quest away from God. And the truth that when we turn our back on God, when we move away from God, the place that we end up ultimately is violence. We do violence to ourselves, we do violence to others, to communities, to creation, to relationships. Now, Matthew connects this horrific moment to a prophecy from Jeremiah. And it raises a question for us that I think we need to sit with just for a moment. In our attempts to celebrate Christmas and to enter into this season, do we at the same time leave room for our pain? Do we leave room for weeping and great mourning? Or is it all about everything is great and fine and things are wonderful? It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Do we leave room for our pain? Now, the other side of this scene are these mysterious magi, the antithesis of Herod in just about every way. We might say it this way, they represent our quest towards God. And it's impossible to understand the Magi without going back to the Old Testament for just a moment. So if you still have a Bible with you or open, turn to um, Isaiah chapter 60. And I want to read a couple of verses from the beginning of Isaiah 60 that help illuminate the role of these mysterious men from the east. Isaiah 60 verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. The riches of the nations will come Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba, will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Now these words come from a time when the people of Israel had been conquered. They'd been carted off to live in subjugation in distant lands. Imagine for a moment being exiled to a foreign land. You're far from home. You're living under the rule of this pagan, oppressive government. And you hear these words from Isaiah. This sounds pretty cool, right? Not only will you be home again, not only will you no longer be subject to a foreign king, but these kings will come to you. And they'll bring tribute to you. They'll bring their wealth. They'll bring their camels. They'll bring these gifts to you. Not a bad turn of events. Matthew's connecting this moment when the Magi arrived to this scene in Isaiah 60. Now the Magi are somewhat unknown figures. They only show up here in Matthew's gospel. 
They, they might have been from, from Persia. They were probably royalty of some sort or certainly wealthy enough to be able to make a long journey and to bring the type of gifts that they brought. They, they might also have been priests of some sort of religious system that involves you know, looking into the sky and reading the stars. Not a lot that we know about them for sure, but what we can say is that they were not Israelites, not Hebrews, and yet they recognize something important about Jesus. In fact, they are the first to recognize Jesus as king. The outsiders get it first. And they come not to compete with Jesus, not to cut a deal with him, not to destroy him or kill him. They come to worship him. Back to Matthew chapter 2. After they had heard the king, this here referring to Herod, they went on their way and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Here again, we have a, a, a very interesting tension. Jesus fulfilling a promise. And yet at the same time, uh, Matthew shows us how he subverts some of the expectations that grew around these promises and prophecies. And let's look at one interesting way this happens with the Magi, in particular related to the gifts that they bring. Frankincense and gold mentioned specifically in both Isaiah and Matthew. Now gold, obviously, very valuable. This is a gift that signified royalty. And through this gift, the Magi are recognizing Jesus as king, submitting to him as an authority. Frankincense, another precious commodity. It was often used in worship ceremonies. The Jews used it in their temple during different ceremonies. And for them, it was a symbol of God's presence, God's spirit. And so here, the Magi, recognizing Jesus' divinity, worshiping him not just as an earthly king, but as God. But then, here comes the surprise. Here comes the twist. What is myrrh? Why do they bring this? Jesus. Myrrh is not a part of the Isaiah text. It had many uses, but it shows up twice at the end of Jesus' time on earth. First, when Jesus is on the cross, he's offered this mixture of wine and myrrh as a way to numb his pain. And then it shows up again after his death. In preparation for his burial, we read in John 19, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them, this is Nicodemus and another guy named uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the two of them wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and strips of linen, and this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Myrrh was a, a signifier of burial. Now, who knows exactly what these wise men knew and understood, but their gift represents the great twist in this story. The twist Israel had all the evidence for, but didn't see coming, that their Savior, their King, was going to die. That this baby would bring them salvation through his death. The light that they had been promised, defeating the darkness 
through his resurrection and as a result, providing forgiveness for their sins and reconciliation with God. Now think about these three quests we've considered so far. Some of us, we might be like Joseph. We've been working really hard at this quest to justify ourselves. We've been trying to earn approval from God, approval from others by being a nice person, being a good guy. Some of us, we might be like Herod. We've been actively running away from God. And then others, maybe we've been genuinely seeking God. Like the Magi, feeling this call to worship. But wherever you might be at, whichever of those quests you might feel like you identify with, what Matthew wants us to see is that the good news of the Advent story is that in Jesus, we discover God has been on a quest for us. In Jesus, we discover God has been on a quest for us. And this quest does not look like how we might imagine it. Jesus, the Son of God, this King who is a light to all the nations, is born into scandal and conflict. He's born a homeless refugee. And the arrival of the Prince of Peace sets off this violent struggle with the oppressive powers of the world who do not want to recognize him as King. This is not a peaceful, comfortable, nice story. It's almost impossible to imagine a more bizarre, humble beginning to Jesus' life. And this says something to us so important about God, that Jesus is born into a mess. This brings us back to Christmas tree windows. Again, contrast that idea of a beautiful home decked out for Christmas with a dirty manger in a small backcountry town in first century Palestine. Later in that Isaiah passage, God says, I will beautify my beautiful house. There's no amount of decorating we can do to make ourselves more beautiful or more acceptable to God. One New Testament writer says it this way, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In order to bring us forgiveness of sins, in order to be Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus had to get into our mess. This is such good news for us. Today we lit that candle of peace. Peace can be a very fleeting quality for many of us. We feel especially during this season, hurried, anxious, worried, stressed out. And I wonder if that's because we've been working really hard, questing to find something, questing to run away from something, questing to make ourselves look better, when all the while God is on a quest for you. When what you need is right there, this baby in a manger, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our King, Jesus. Because God has done the work for us, made peace for us through Jesus, all we have left to do is respond. 
As we come in for a close this morning, I want us to think about our response through the gifts that the Magi bring. They bring gold and frankincense and myrrh as they come to worship. And so what would it look like for us to bring our gold? To respond to this good news of peace with God by submitting our lives to his authority, naming him as king. And maybe a couple of questions to ponder here. In what ways have you been trying to rule the world? In what ways are you holding on to control, seeking to control a situation or an outcome? Have you recognized Jesus as king and allowed him to rule in your life? What does it look like to bring him your gold? What about frankincense? What does it look like for us to recognize Jesus' divinity? And maybe some questions for us here. Are you in pain? Are you tired? Have you been trying to operate out of your own strength? Your own competency? And maybe the invitation for you is to, again, bring your, frank your frankincense. Let go of that control. Worship God as God and let him do his work as God. And then finally, what does it look like, us for, look like for us to bring myrrh, to recognize Jesus as our Savior, as the one who, through his death, covers our mess and makes something beautiful in its place? Is there some sin that you need to repent of? In what way do you need to invite the Savior into your mess? So what's the invitation for you? Which way do you need to respond? How will you worship the one who stepped into conflict and violence, the true king who loves us first and who gives his life to die in our place so that we can have peace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we consider the full picture of the Advent story, we do see that there is um, just some crazy stuff. Uh, and that it wasn't just this sort of neat, tidy, um, nice, precious moment that happened 2,000 years ago, but that you were born into conflict, you were born into a time of violence, you were born uh, into a time when there were all these different competing powers in the world. People were expecting something and you showed up in a completely different way. And yet, God, it, it, I think because of that truth, it becomes all the more apparent how much we need you. So, Father, wherever we might be this morning, maybe we've been on a quest to make ourselves look good. Maybe we've been actively running away from you. Or maybe we have been genuinely seeking you, God. Wherever we might be there, would we continue to discover the good news that you have been on a quest for us? that through Jesus you demonstrate you're not distant from us, you're not removed from us, but you've come down, you've entered into all of the messy, complicated aspects of our lives and you are truly Emmanuel, God with us. 
Father, I pray for our, our time here as we close this morning that we would hear that message again, that we would respond in the way that we need to respond. For some of us that might be acknowledging for the first time that you are Savior and Lord, you are the true King. For others of us, we've, again, we've been trying to uh, do some things on our own. We need to let go of control. We need to trust that you have got things taken care of. And as we do that, God, we have this growing awareness of peace with you because of what you have done through Jesus, his death and resurrection, forgiving our sins, creating a way for us to be in right relationship with you. God, may that truth continue to grow in our hearts. May we reflect that truth to those around us who need to hear it, who need to see it. And would you grow in us a, a love for this Jesus who is with us. We pray this in his name.